0: we could turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're continuing the series on the self-revelation of God in Scripture. As I say last time, we've now reached a point where we are discussing God's revelation after sin came into the world. And this chapter is um, foundational to the rest of Scripture. And we discussed last week how the evil one, Satan, um, deceived Adam and Eve into eating of the forbidden fruit of the probation tree. And we discussed how from God's standpoint uh, he had brought Satan to this tree for man uh, to enact his task of being the judge of Satan, of expelling Satan from the garden of the Lord. It was man's responsibility to guard the holy place as a priest. Instead, man broke the covenant with God, and not only that, made league with the devil himself. And so in the verses which follow, the ones that we've read tonight, we have the record of God's first judgment day. The day of the Lord, or the judgment day, is of course, is a great theme in Scripture. And the, here we have a record of the first judgment day. What a sad thing that there had to be a judgment day at all. But man has now sinned. And we read in this chapter about judgment upon Satan, and judgment upon Eve, and judgment upon Adam. And we know from Scripture elsewhere that this judgment was a judgment upon the whole of the human race. Romans 5, verse 12 says, As though, as through one man, sin entered into the world, and through sin, death. And thus death passed to all men, in whom all sinned. And that's the verse we're going to need to come back to time and time again. And so I'm just going to simply walk through this, the rest of this chapter with some simple headings and make some comments as we go along. But we're going not necessarily to keep to the verse order. We're going to start with verse 8. And our first heading is the day of judgment verse 8 the day of judgment and they heard the voice of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god amongst the trees of the garden what we read here is Of what is called in scripture, in theology at least, not necessarily scripture, in theology, a theophany. A theophany is something which we come across many times in the Old Testament. We've already had one of these in Genesis 1, verse 2, where we read about the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters, literally brooding like like a bird, fluttering over the empty. Darkness, and in its simplest form, a theophany in Scripture is a visible appearance of God, and God is invisible. But there are times in the Old Testament where He appears in visible form, and I'm sure we can all think of examples of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Of course, in the first theophany, there was no one to observe this theophany but since the creation of man we could define a theophany as uh, a manifestation of god that is tangible to the human senses and as i say in this series we will come, we will come across these theophanies and some of these theophanies these manifestations of god the church has interpreted. As Christophanies, a Christophany is what theologians call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We all know about the incarnation of Christ, uh, which we celebrated, celebrated Christ, in Christmas. But there are some examples. We will discuss these as we go on, where the Church has, has said that they are pre of Christ in a theophanic form. And so we read here in verse 8 of God judging man and Satan in the form of a visible presence. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. A very physical description of God. And in this awesome, visible presence, both man and Satan had to give an account of themselves before the face of the Lord. And we read here of God's approach through the garden in the call of the day. Now, this phrase the call of the day and I, I won't often go into any sort of technical things but it is probably giving a false a very false really impression of what's going on here by calling it calling it the call of the day giving the impression that it's like a lazy english summer afternoon with cricket going on in the background the background. the actual hebrew is talking about the storm, the wind of the day, or also it could be the spirit of the day, it's ruach, the ruach harom, ha- hayom. the spirit of the day, which is the same word, ruach, which is in Genesis 1 verse 2, where we read about the spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. It's exactly the same word and so what we're reading of here is God coming in his judgment as the wind is the storm or as the spirit of the day there was something frightening about this something awesome about this which you don't really get from the call of the day. And and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, shall we say, as the spirit of the day. That seemed to be the best translation. And thus rendered, we see this as God coming as his invisible form, as a theophany, in his Shekinah presence, in the stormy wind of his judgment. And many scholars see this as the original, the first day of the Lord, the first judgment day, the model upon which all other days of the Lord are based, and of which we read so much in Scripture. And so Adam and Eve experience this judgment as the presence of the Lord, as the personal revelation of of the glory of God. We read of the presence of the Lord in the, the, the latter end of verse 8. it says his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so panem, that panem, that word panem is, can also be translated the face of the Lord. So they hid themselves, we could say, from the presence or from the face of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. However, it's translated, what we're reading of here is Adam and his wife hiding themselves from God as he comes in the day of judgment. (coughs) Associated with this. Coming of the Lord, this um, approach of the Lord is the sound of the voice of the Lord, which we read of also. They heard the voice of the Lord God. And in Scripture, the advent of the visible, visible divine presence in Scripture is nearly always associated with some form of audio. you read of one occasion where it was a still, small voice, at Pentecost it was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, Um, at Sinai there was the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words which voice the scripture says, that they heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. They quite liked the idea of seeing and hearing God at the beginning, but they soon went off the idea The psalms refer to the thunderclap of the voice of the Lord and in the final perusia, the final day of the Lord uh, the scripture says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and so when God comes in his days of judgment he always comes with the sound there's always the same sound but it comes with a terrifying sound of judgment and this is what we're reading of here. i mentioned these things so that in our minds when we read verse 8 we we sort of rid our minds of some kind of calm serene uh, gentle um, idea that's not what's happening here at all god is coming in judgment man has sinned. And such is the voice, such is the sound of God's voice and the sound of his approach that man hides in the truth. And then secondly, we read of the exposure of man's sin. The second part of verse 8 says Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. Men who once loved, man who once loved the word of God and lived every day by every word that proceeded from God, now hides from the voice, from the presence of God. And now they are alarmed by the sight of God's coming. And they seek to hide from God amongst the trees. But you see, no concealment was possible. They tried to hide in the shadows of the trees because now man loves darkness rather than light. Because his deeds are evil. But you see you can't hide from God. David the psalmist said, if I say surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You see, you can't hide from, you can't hide in the shadow of the trees from God. There's no hiding from the parousia of God. The advent of the glory of God through the garden was inescapable. I don't know, have you ever been in a big garage or a warehouse and it's dark and then somebody puts the lights on and there are different rows of lights and they come on strip by strip and suddenly that which was dark is now full of light. That's In my mind, that's what I, I imagine This scene, they were there, hiding from God in the shadows of a tree. But as God came closer and closer, it was like the lights came on and everything was filled with light. And they were found out. There's no place to hide from God's Spirit. David said, whither shall I go from thy Spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall my hand lead me, and my hand shall hold me. There's no hiding from God, dear friends. There'll be no hiding from God in that final day. This is the prototype. The first day of the Lord, but there will be a final day of the Lord. Where it says in Revelation 6 that the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bold man, and every free man, will try to hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and say to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us, hide us from the face, from the panin of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb you see you can't hide from god you can't hide adam and eve couldn't hide from god on the first day of judgment and no one will be able to hide from him on the last day the truth of the matter is and this is a very serious matter there is no hiding place from god Unless you are hidden in God, that sounds strange, but it's true. And so, my question to each one of us is, are you in God? Is your life hidden in God? Is He your hiding place? Or are you trying to hide from God, from what you know to be true? maybe from what you know is true from parents or others, but you're hiding from it. And you think, oh, well, I think I can get away with this. I I, I can put on some kind of um, act or, or, or live my life in such a way that I'll, I'll try and go under the radar and no one will see me. I, I'll, I'll say the right sort of words, I won't do anything too bad, uh, and I'll, I, I'll try and hide. But you see, God's searchlight goes right through that forest and sees Adam and Eve hiding in the shadows. And some people prefer the shadow of the trees rather than the sunlight of walking in obedience with God. But you see, you can't hide from them. Even before God exposed man for what he had done, we read of how their own consciences showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And their thoughts are meanwhile accusing or else accusing one another. And this took the form of a sense of shame over their physical nakedness, which we read of in verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. You see previously within the marriage relationship, Eve was um, bone of Adam's bone, flesh of his flesh. Uh, and nakedness was the most natural thing in the world because you know, no one's embarrassed to be naked on their own, are they? And if someone's bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, they are you and you are they. And that was how it was, there was no shame of, of nakedness. But now, their physical nakedness brought confusion and shame to them. You see, their conscience bore them witness that they, they had sinned. They were alienated from God now, but they were also alienated from each other. Sin brings always a wall of division to every relationship of man. It brings a middle wall of partition that only comes down through the peace that comes from the blood of the cross of Christ. And that is at root of every relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a family, whether it's a political, whatever it is, whatever relationship at, at the root of the problem is this middle or partition, this separation, first of all, from God and from each other. And so Adam and Eve tried to hide from each other. They tried to hide from each other with, with leaves from the trees. And they tried to hide from God with the trees. But it didn't work. They felt their physical and their spiritual nakedness. They had lost the beauty, you see, of holiness. They had lost their natural innocence and righteousness before God. And instead of reflecting God's glory, they began to reflect the evil of the serpent with whom they had. Sided. And this comes out very clearly in the interrogation by God. This new nature, this sinful nature, comes out. The first buds of its corrupt nature, which will get worse through time, develops into very slowly but it develops ultimately into unspeakable wickedness. And so notice how man, once he realised that he could not avoid God's he could not avoid God and that God was going to question him, notice how man resorts to suppression of the truth. Verse 9. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Man resorts to suppression of the truth through the tactics that Satan used. Evasion, distortion, deception. Skills that they had quickly picked up from the father of lies. You see, even in this verse 10, which I've just read, exposed by God, Adam tries to reflect or deflect God onto the consequences of his sin, rather than the cause of it. Why are you hiding, Adam? Because I'm naked. Well, that wasn't the issue. Notice how God does not permit Adam to treat the physical as if it were sufficient explanation for his shame, for his fear. God traces and exposes the root of the problem in Adam's sin. Where he says, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? I think there's a great lesson here to friends, that, you see Adam is trying to say to God I was hiding because I was naked, not I was hiding because I've sinned and there's a great lesson for us that man's guilt, shame, his alienation This lack of peace, all the broken relationships cannot be dealt with through physical means. The physical result of sin, the physical issues from sin aren't the root of the problem. And we try to deal with people's problems through psychology or psychotherapy, medical interventions or clean eating or meditation or well-being mindfulness um, all these
1: things and the last thing anyone does
0: is to try to deal with the root the deep root of sin but you see god didn't do that did he? he he wasn't going to be deflected he's saying no adam the reason you're ashamed the reason you're fearful of my voice It's not because you're naked, it's because you sinned. And you broke covenant with me. And that's the reason you're full of shame now. That's the reason you're so scared of my voice, of my footsteps. And why you're in the shadow of the trees, loving darkness, trying to hide from the light. See, we need to be clear with ourselves and with others in the same way that God was with Adam. That our problems and the problems of our friends and the people that we meet in the street when we evangelise, they're not ultimately rooted in the, the, the results of sin. They are rooted in sin itself. Who told thee that thou wast naked? God said. Hast thou eaten of the tree? Where have I commanded thee that thou shouldst eat? Of course God knew that Adam had uh, sinned, had eaten of this fruit. And Adam, I think, knew that God knew. And so Adam then tries another tactic. In verse 12, he then tries to blame put the blame on his wife. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. You see, Adam was still trying to evade responsibility. And now he blames Eve, and by implication blames God, the woman that you gave me. If you hadn't given me this woman, I would have sinned these are almost implying and so it's in all of us isn't it to try and evade the root of our problems Ooh. it is sin dear friends and until the sin problems dealt with our lives will never be right our relationships will never be right And so having cross-examined, as it were, uh, Adam, he then turns to Eve in verse 13. And he says, The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And so the woman's at it now. She's now blaming the serpent. She tries to evade her own responsibility and blames the serpent. Again, there's something deep within all of us which seems to evade, knowing what we really are. And every day in the news we... It seems to be particularly young people now in university that problems are all to do with systems or structural racism or capitalism. Or some kind of ism. Mm.
1: Um,
0: never, never is it rooted in an individual. It's always the problems of life are, are now put upon structures and, and organisations and patriarchy. Things which uh, are very difficult to pin down and define, but systems of power which are permeating through society, which are causing unconscious bias and we all we all need to be aware of institutional biases and these are the things that are making life difficult and causing all the problems. And young people are seeing sin in everything else but apart from themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not just young people. But. And that's why when we preach the gospel the individual must be called to the law of God. There's no point preaching a social gospel. There's no point preaching a structural gospel. It's not about social injustice. I'm not saying there's not, no such thing as social injustice. But a sinner is a sinner individually and needs to be saved as an individual. And each one of us is responsible for our own sin. And we can't hide from that. We can't hide behind what other people have done to us. A, if, if that hadn't happened in our life, I wouldn't be the way that I am. If I had that opportunity in the same way as that other person or group had an opportunity, then my life wouldn't be as it is today. That isn't how God works, to friends. He wouldn't allow Adam, he wouldn't allow Eve to get away with it. Then we move on, thirdly, to the curse on the serpent, verse 14 and 15. The curse upon the serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." And so after exposing the sin of man, the Lord turns to the serpent and performs a judgment upon the serpent. And God declares an irrevocable curse upon the enemy. It's not the final judgment, he didn't send him into the lake of fire, but rather he gives an immediate word of doom. You are cursed, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And there's a strong connection between the way the curse would play out for Satan throughout the course of history and um, and he's being condemned to go on his belly you see because the snake was condemned to go on his belly it enabled the woman's seed to bruise his head and it ensured that the serpent could only bruise the heel of the seed of the woman Verse 15 is the continuation of the curse of Satan. But in the judgment of Satan, there is gospel promise for the elect of God. God pronounces the curse of enmity between Satan and Eve, and between Satan's seed and Eve's seed. And this is the beginning, really, of holy war that still rages today. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, Mm -hmm. against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, God declared war, declared a curse against this serpent and against the seed of this serpent. Satan had attacked God via the woman, and God would counter attack via the woman. And we'll have cause to come back to this verse many times as we progress through this series. But I want you to be encouraged tonight that if you know Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, then you are part of this holy army This seed of the woman, you are a soldier among many millions through the generations of human history who are part of the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman, who would, what, bruise the head of this serpent. The first level meaning of the seed of the woman needs to be taken in the collective sense of the word. As the elect of all mankind the elect of God and this is contrasted with the seed of the serpent the seed of Eve is the elect the seed of the serpent are those who persist in following Satan rather than the Lord and there are only two seeds two families if you like the family of Eve, the elect, or the family of Satan? John in 1 John 3, verse 8 and following common, gives a commentary on these verses. He says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Listen to this. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil two seeds. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And what would characterise the relationship between Satan and the woman and her seed and his seed would be enmity, God says. I I, God, will place enmity between you. And so from the standpoint of Eve, because I believe Adam and Eve were converted very soon, became saved very soon after this promise. From the standpoint of Eve, this would mean a radical experience of salvation, enmity with the serpent, the one that she had preferred over God now. She is enmity to Moses. And that's the result of repentance, the result of saving faith, a complete reversal of attitude assumed by Eve towards God and towards Satan. Man had sided with God and opposed God, but now the attitude towards Satan becomes one of hostility. And that's a good test of ourselves, dear friends, isn't it? Do we hate the works of the enemy? Are we distressed by the devastation that Satan wreaks through the world every day? Do we have that enmity between between us and his seed, his works? Or are we grieved by the Filthy communications of, of the world around us. It's a good test of ourselves. It was what Brother Lee was talking about on Sunday, that looking back in, in the heart to to the life of the world, to, to the life of Satan, to the life of sin. Is it still in our hearts or do we have a, an enmity? Against the world, against the things of the flesh, and the world and the devil. Or do we have a lustful heart like Lot's wife? And so this enmity would play out through time, and we'll see this as we go through. But then we have this phrase in this 15th verse: "He will bruise, or it will bruise your head, and you will bruise." Is heal. The promise is that somehow, out of the human race, a fatal blow will come which shall crush the head of the serpent. We well, have to be a bit careful because the idea of a, a personal messiah took a long time to percolate. In the old testament it's a later idea and you really get to isaiah in places like that so we mustn't overstate the case but there is a tiny hint here isn't there the faintest of hints that an individual would come who would be the champion of the lord's army and an individual combat with satan would inflict a fatal blow upon the head of the serpent and in contrast that champion would be inflicted on the heel would have been injured on his heel And so this theme of, of Holy Seed and of a Messiah coming from this seed uh, as a kind of David defeating Goliath is a huge theme throughout scripture and we'll come to it time again. Shadowing and unclear at first in verse 15 but in the light of scripture we know that the messiah of the old testament came and vanquished satan and uh, it reaches i suppose its clearest explanation in Revelation chapter 12, whether we'll ever reach Revelation in this series, I don't no, know. I might be dead by then. But if we do, we'll, we'll, we'll look at Revelation 12 properly. But in shorthand, what we read there, in Revelation 12, is the appearance of a great dragon, which is identified as the ancient serpent, the devil. There is a woman who gives birth to a son, and the passage speaks about the rest of the seed of the woman. The life of the child born to the woman is described in messianic terms, and he has a worldwide rule. He is the son of man, and his encounter with the serpent culminates in his ascension to the throne of God. And this is treated as the coming of salvation and of the coming of the Kingdom of Christ. And the serpent tries to devour the child, but is doomed to defeat. And when the sun is caught up into heaven, Satan is cast down out of heaven, into the abyss initially, and finally into the lake of the second death world. Well, That's Genesis 3.15, isn't it? And Satan's head will be well and truly bruised, crushed by the time Messiah has finished with him. And it's in this hope that we rest. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So that was the judgment on Satan. Then fourthly, coming to the end, the judgment on man. The judgment on man because now, having dealt with Satan, the Lord turns First of all, to the woman in verse 16, he says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. <clears throat> We're not going to get through all this tonight, so we may need to continue next time, but. What we have here, first of all, is the judgment on man, as I say, in two parts. First of all, we have a common curse. After dealing, as I say, with the serpent, the Lord turns to the two covenant breakers. But it's not the ultimate curse, and this is what we need to understand. In his mercy, God gives a common curse rather than a final curse. He
1: doesn't impose immediately the final judgment on
0: sinners. It's a temporal, it's a restrained curse to which all men in common will experience Until the final separation between the two two seeds at the final judgment. And I need to explain what I mean by that. In a couple of minutes, we're going to have to finish soon. This is really the first indication of what is known in in theology or in scripture as common grace and we'll consider common grace when we get to the um, covenant with Noah in particular. But God's curse that he gives to man is such, given in such a way that life can carry on. You see, with Eve, he says you're going to, pregnancy is going to be Filled with suffering, miscarriage, barrenness. But children will be born. To man, he says, Your work's going to be hard and it's going to feel like vanity. Ecclesiastes is a good commentary on mm. that verse. Mm. But work will take place, man will be able to provide provide bread for his family, albeit by the sweat of his brow. Life carries on until, why does it carry on? It carries on so that God can fulfill his plan of redemption and that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, will come and and bring in the elect of God. And then, in that final day, there will be the separation, Finally, the two seeds of the man and the woman, and the serpent, delaying judgment, so that salvation can work its way through history, so the seed of the woman can develop. And this is experienced. This common grace, this common curse, is experienced by everyone. It's experienced by the righteous and the unrighteous the sun shines on us both. There's a common curse and there's a common grace. And this is important. We'll, come. we'll have to complete this next time. And This is important. There's nowhere in scripture, for example, where it's promised that a Christian woman will have an easier time Pregnancy than a non Christian woman. Nowhere is it promised that that, that a Christian man will have more wealth than a non Christian man or have any less problems, any fewer problems in his work. And we need to be very careful when things go wrong with us uh, that we, we don't assume that it's some kind of sin that our brother or sister has done. Jesus said uh, to the, about the blind man to the Lord. Was it he or his parents that had sinned? And Jesus said, neither. Mm-hmm. You see, we're under a common curse and life is hard. Mm-hmm. Life is full of vanity. And that Monday morning feeling is quite alright to have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's part of that Ecclesiastes truth that all is vanity. Because death has come into the world. But there's also common grace. God allows life to carry on and uh, in his time the Messiah would come and this promise will be fulfilled. Salvation will come and although man experiences much sorrow, woman much sorrow. Hope is on its way. Salvation will come. In the Old Testament, those who believe who put their faith in the promise are saved, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, those of us who put our faith in the fulfillment of the promise are saved. And so tonight, dear friends, we've only got a fraction of the way through this chapter. Let us take seriously, very seriously, the impact of sin, the devastating impact on sin and let us make sure that we are not hiding from God, that we are hidden from God, that we can look into his panny, his face, that we can be in his presence without fear and enjoy every word of
1: from his love. Amen. Amen.